if you've been here the last couple of weeks, we're going through a small series on money. And uh, that can be a bit of an intimidating topic and a little bit of a scary topic. But if you've been around with us for a little bit, I think already this year we've covered abortion, we've covered racism, and uh, we've covered some pretty crazy things. So what the heck, let's talk about money, right? Might as well. Nothing scares us. Um, so we're talking about money. We're in our third week of this money series, and we've looked at what it means to be a steward of all that God has entrusted to us, how these things are only entrusted to us, that God is the owner of everything. We are not the owners of anything at all. We receive and are entrusted with all that we have. And as, response, uh, as stewards, we have a responsibility to use these things in the way that, that God would and in light with his desires and, and what matters to him. And then last week, we looked at uh, the principle of worship as as it relates to our money. And today we're going to be wrapping up with our final installment in this small series. But I want to just say too, as a bit of a disclaimer, the reason why we're doing this series on money is not because we're in the middle of a financial crisis, because we're not. We really believe, and we're not doing this to try to like squeeze more money out of you. It's not about that at all. We believe that this is a discipleship issue. When I say it's a discipleship issue, what I mean by that is it's part of following Jesus. Because money has a funny way of messing up our hearts, right? It completely jacks with our hearts, and it really, um, it, it can really expose where our hearts are at. And we realize that, that sometimes, as it relates to some of these things, we can get clingy with this stuff, we can have the wrong perspective of these things, and it can interfere with the degree of surrender that's in our lives, or the, or the ways that we are um, managing as stewards these things that God has entrusted to us. And we start to think, man, like this is actually mine to do with as I see fit, and we lose sight of the fact that it is first God's. So we believe that as it relates to money, that money is a discipleship issue. It's, it's part of us surrendering our lives, and it's part of us living for Jesus. So we need to understand what the Bible says about these things. The Bible has a lot to say about money, and so we feel that because of that, we too should seek to talk about it and to be equipped better together about how God is calling us to manage these things that he's entrusted to us. This morning, what I want to do is I want to introduce you to someone uh, in our church community that is a story, that has a story that I, I really want you to hear. Um, as I've learned more about his story, it has been so exciting to me to, to hear how God has worked in his life as it relates to some of these things. And so what I'm going to do now is I'm going to have Theo come on up and join me on the stage. And I'm going to turn this puppy on. There you go, buddy. It will be in a second. Okay. I'm, I have faith. Yes. If not, I'll speak loudly. If, if, and I know that you can. Oh, believe me. Uh, there we go. There we go. No need. I, I can dial it back a little. So as, as you all know, we're talking about money. This is a discipleship issue, first and foremost. But there was a time in your life where, as it, related, as it relates to money and your personal situation, your personal finances and all that, it really exposed a discipleship, I guess I'll call it a discipleship deficit in your life. And there was, it was really in the area of your life that you hadn't surrendered. Now, anyone that knows you, and a lot of people know Theo. I was talking to Casey the other day. Theo may be the one... He may have been to more church gatherings than anybody else in this room. So you probably all know Theo. I'm not keeping count. <laughs> but if you know Theo, you know that this is not someone who has a shaky relationship with Jesus. He's a solid Christian, and that, that we know you in that way. Yet you discovered about a year ago that there was sort of a, an area of, of a lack of surrender in your life as it relates to this. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, I would say this went back to when I first came to Christ, which now was 10 years ago. I always knew intellectually that I was saved, but I persistently struggled with this sense of doubt and lack of assurance that God was with me in my everyday life. And over time, he showed me that that was related to how I handled money. Uh, I consistently struggled with bouts of unemployment and underemployment at times. And hand in hand with that were some very severe financial struggles. It seems like I barely had enough to survive until the next paycheck. And I just went more and more heavily in debt, uh, owing money to several creditors and just seeing no way out of it, no matter how hard I tried to figure things out on my own. And so I think a lot of people in this room can sort of relate to what it looks like to have 
increasing debt. And that's a real life thing that we all deal with. How did that manifest in something that you began to learn was a spiritual problem in your heart? I had this nagging conviction, which I think I silenced several times over the years, that I wondered if it has anything, if there's any connection at all with my giving or lack thereof. I'm not saying that's the, that's the case with everybody who's struggling financially. Uh, cert- certainly, I, w- I wouldn't presume to know that. But I do know that in my case, I was giving irregularly, inconsistently, with small amounts, and it really seemed as if God was getting my leftovers rather than my best in that way. And so you felt, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but you, you've started to feel that, uh, I, mean, I think you mentioned earlier, there was a lack of trust there between you and God. Exactly. I... I didn't really trust him for my future. I always felt a little bit anxious about what was going to come around the corner. And as a result, even though I had so little, I held tightly onto it. I'm thinking, I've got to squeeze everything I can out of this. And I'm sorry, I don't have any room for the Lord here. Right. So it was really money and your financial situation, which we can all appreciate was difficult for you at that time, that really started to expose in your heart and in your own mind, and you started to realize that, wow, uh, it's because of this financial, difficult financial situation, I'm not trusting in God to provide for me. I'm not trusting that he's going to take care of me. And because of that, you started sort of um, like holding on to these things a lot more tightly because you were trusting in yourself, really, to, to manage your money, I guess. Yeah, I was trusting in myself and just seeing things get worse. And finally, I had to humble myself before God and acknowledge that my way of things hasn't worked out. How did that click for you? What what happened? Well, it happened a year ago when I was facing the prospect of having to move out of the west side of L.A., where most of us live and are called on mission. And I did something which seemed crazy to me at the time. I, I, you know, I went before the Lord and I started to settle the issue of how much and how, and how often I was going to give to him. I know that there are varying convictions about that, uh, depending on your church background. Um, I decided um, I am gonna give, I, I, I decided at the time like I was gonna give 10% of my income off the top every month. Now, gross or net? I'm gross. just kidding, I'm just kidding, I'm just kidding. <laughs> well, if you want, because you asked, gross. But yes. People debate over that, yeah. too. And so you decide, okay, here's an area of my life that's not surrendered. It makes sense in the sense that it's a normal struggle. I'm struggling financially, so it's not even like this, this hardened rebellion. It's right. like, I'm struggling but it exposed your heart and you realize, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give this up. I'm going to surrender this area of my life to God. And so whether I have a lot or a little, what does come in, I'm going to put some of this aside first for him acknowledging that it's his. Yeah, that was a huge shift for me uh, to, to give up front because it was by far the scariest thing I've ever done in my life, bar none. Like when I'm already facing need to walk in really... I mean, no obedience is risky as long as God's with us and promises us, but it seemed extremely risky at the time Mm -hmm. because I figured, what if things get worse? Yeah, and that's why it's called trust. Right. And that's why it's called faith. Yeah, it's funny. Sometimes it's it's, uh, the duality between obedience and faith. Obedience, you just do what you're told. Faith, there's risk involved. And it could also involve obedience where, you know, you're called to something, but sometimes you don't have to risk anything just to obey. Just, oh, thanks for letting me know. I'm going to do this. So as God is working out this transformation in your heart, uh, it's now no longer even about, it's not even about money anymore. You're now being brought into a place where your relationship with God is deepening and maturing as a result of this confrontation of this area of your life that you hadn't surrendered. And now you fully surrendered and you, you said this trans- transformation took place about a year ago. How has that worked out in your life, and what else has that affected? Where, is your, where are you at now spiritually as a result of this confrontation of your heart? Well, we're coming up on the 12 months since I began, and not only did I pay off my creditors much sooner than I expected, but I also learned an important lesson from that. I learned that how we handle money is just... It's like a a physical, tangible representation of how we entrust all our lives to God. 
and whatever he calls us to sacrifice in the short moment, in the short term, in obedience to his word, he can and does give so much more and so much greater in return. And I can carry that into other areas of my life also. And even look back, looking back, you now see how your, your fear, although reasonable at the time, yeah. now looking back, you realize how it was totally unfounded. Yeah, I look back. Because he took care of you. I did. It, 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 this, yeah, this sacrifice, which seemed like so big, like it seemed like so much money, it seems so small now. Because as we talked about, God owns everything. Yep. And he can give to his people how it, in, in whatever way he chooses. Yeah. There, there's no limit to him. Right. So it's so great to hear about how you as a disciple of Jesus Christ, it was the, it was the, the money issue that brought it, brought it to the forefront, but then it was like, no, there's an opportunity for me to grow as a disciple of Jesus Christ. So for you to grow in faith, grow in obedience, and grow in deeper surrender, uh, I'm, I'm just, that's just exciting to hear, and I think that's something um, worth noting and worth celebrating, and, uh, and I'm assuming you don't regret it? Not, not at all. And, and the, the funny thing about it is I never once thought about it in terms of the church needs my money. Right. Because for me, that was never the main issue. Yeah, it's not for the, us either. The main issue was I knew that I was living at arm's length yep. as a disciple of Christ. And I, I can say all day long that I trust him with the future, but... I think there's a reason why Jesus talks so much about money because there's so much spiritual power behind it, I believe. Yeah. And when that idol is broken in our lives, I think it really is a gateway to yeah. like a deeper faith, trust, and intimacy yeah. with God. Yeah, Jesus said where your treasure is, there, there your heart is also. Yeah. And so when we sort of see where we place our treasure, it exposes where our heart is at. And that's really what happened with you. Your, that your heart was exposed. You're like, oh, I think I'm gonna make a change in that. And uh, your heart was now aligned more with God's, and that was an area of your life of surrender. So thank you so much for that. Thanks for sharing your story. Thank you for having me. Theo and I were talking last night, and we agreed that this is not so much a story about Theo, where he's the hero, but this is a story about God and his grace and his goodness. And we want to make sure that we highlight that, that uh, God is in in the business of drawing people to himself and and bringing us into a close relationship with him. And, And Theo is just an example of what it looks like to follow Jesus with every aspect of our lives. So thanks again, Theo, for sharing. All right, grab your Bibles. Pastor Casey's gonna come on up now. And you can turn to the book of Mark. Good morning. So grateful for you, Theo. Even if nobody knows Theo, if you listen to our podcast, you know Theo. (laughs) He's the only person who laughs at my jokes. Faithfully. Uh, My name is Casey. I'm one of the pastors here. Mark chapter 12, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the first four books is going to be your second book. We're just going to do a a short prayer for our time in God's word, and then we're going to get into it. Lord Jesus, my heart is touched by, by hearing Theo's testimony, just the fact that, that you so longingly, God, want us to be free from enslaved idols. You want us to find freedom and you want us to find goodness and you know that is found in you and you alone. And so Lord, I pray as your word is open before us now that we would see that, we would look for that, and we would apply that. Spirit of living God, I'm a very imperfect man and an imperfect Bible teacher. Today will not be perfect, but by the power, God, of your spirit, today might be transformative. That's what we need. So we pray these things in the name of Christ, amen. Yeah, so really... The topic of money, I think, especially in the church, is considered the last taboo. People are more open to talk about their political decisions, their sexuality. I even heard somebody the other day talk about how much they liked Imagine Dragon. Like, like that blows my mind. They're so open about it. But money is different, right? 
No one casually talks about their income. Nobody casually talks about how much they paid for certain items. I hate when I buy something, somebody's like, how much was it? Don't do that. Like, don't even ask. We nobody talks about how much they give to the church and et cetera and so on. But why? When the author of this new biography started his research on the, the Duke of Wellington, he was quoted by saying that before he read all of the Duke's speeches or all of his handwritten letters, he said, bring me his account ledgers. Bring me his account ledgers. Because it is from there that I will learn what type of man the Duke was. See, money is the last taboo because it's immensely personal. Doesn't it reveal the truth about who we are, our decisions, our loves, our needs, our desires? So of course, this taboo, of course, this is taboo. I mean, I mean how could it not be? It seems that there needs to be, and I, in my opinion, as a, as a Bible teacher, a great deal of sensitivity with such a taboo. Now, that's my proclivity. That's not Jesus's. So basically, if you're familiar with Christianity, what you'll notice is that the, most, the topics that are the most taboo, that culturally tend to be avoided, they're open season in the Bible. They are open season. The untouched and the most endangered of topics, Christ hunts down, taxidermies it, puts it on full display every time. And of course, money is, is, is truly no exception. So if you remember some of our, our recent facts that we've shared, just so it's stated one more time over the last couple of weeks, that in the Gospels alone, one out of three, one out of three parables, out of all the 40 parables told, were concerned about how to handle money, about how to handle our possessions. And in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, an amazing one out of every 10 verses, 288 in all, deal directly with the subject of money. And lastly, the Bible offers 500 verses on prayer, less than 500 verses on faith. But do you know how many on money? 2,000. All of this concluding that if this topic was dominant in the teachings of Jesus, it's because it is dominant within our lives. So, I want to give one giant caveat, if I can, on this last topic. Before we go any further, today will be challenging. Today's purpose is to be very, challenge, very challenging and a bit um, out of the ordinary. So if you're visiting, just a heads up. Quite literally, I, as a pastor of this church and a brother in Christ, will be presenting a challenge to everybody here because our hopes of what will come across very clearly is that there's no concern or condemnation about how little or how much money we have, but how we use it. Our concern or our thoughts or our angst is how we use our money. And today, in the Gospel of Mark chapter 12, which you have, should have open, what we see is two visual sharp dichotomies in the use of money. So I invite you to follow along, starting in verse 38. I'll start there, but the majority of our focus will be on 41 onward. So verse 38, you can follow along. And in his teaching, he said, this is Jesus speaking, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplace, verse 39, and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts. So who were these scribes? Who were they? Well, as their titles suggest, it comes from the fact in ancient Israel that the ability to read and write was not essentially widespread. So these scribes were like professional secretaries. That's what they were. But what happened over time, what happened over time with them as these scribes were employed into various uh, professions, they eventually started to be more and more narrow in their work. And they started to just reference and refer to studying and interpreting the scriptures. Essentially, in Jesus' day, they were considered the teachers of the law. They were the experts of the law. They were theological animals. 
So if, if anybody here enjoys reading theology, I mean, it's one of those things where it's like, they're the D.A. Carson, Alistair McGrath, Jonathan Sachs of theology, the people you would not go head to head with. In fact, they were so exalted in their own minds and the people around them that it was more punishable to act against the word of a scribe than it was a word of scripture. But either Jesus doesn't know that or rather he really just doesn't care. Because look at verse 38 again. What did we see? And in his teaching, Jesus said, beware. Beware of the interpreters, the experts of the law. Beware of the experts of the Old Testament. What? Not what? Jesus does not care. Something you'll see in the public ministry of Jesus again and again is an unbelievable disdain done in the name of God for these people who were spiritual spectacles. These scribes were spiritual spectacles. And that is exactly what these were. I, think of it this way. I, I was thinking, they're, they're, they're religious peacocks. That's what they are. Scribes are religious peacocks. Now, I lived on a peacock farm growing up. Has anybody lived on a peacock farm? No, just me? Me and you, Theo? Oh, you lied. Oh. Oh, boy. <laughs> Oh boy. <laughs> I grew up on a peacock farm. And let me tell you, there is no animal on this planet more annoying, more filthy, more arrogant, and more spectacular than that of a peacock. Scribes are peacocks. They wore these special robes, the verse informs us. Did you see that? These robes would have dangled all the way to the ground and dangling from the bottom of these robes were these little blue tassels, like, like peacock feathers, okay? These tassels identified them both as Jewish, but also that, 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 that all of their attention went to the word of God. And these robes, they would wear them and they'd parade around the village. It says they loved big greetings. Oh, hi, Martha. And they would just parade around real loudly. Your hair looks great, Martha. Like they would just parade. But, 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 that wasn't the worst of it. Again, look at verse 40. This was not the worst of it for these peacocks. Who devour who devour widows' houses for a pretense, make long prayers, they will receive greater condemnation. Side note, I hope we appreciate Jesus' tone and voice throughout the Bible. He's descriptive and he's poetic, and yet he is always, with these moments, fierce. Jesus is fierce. Those who devour widows' houses. Remember, scribes were these readers and writers. So a woman who tragically lost her husband, an elderly woman, was left with the entire estate and all these bills, so she would want to make sure legally everything was safe and secure. And so they would hire a scribe to handle all of the details, like we hire realtors or accountants. And like a snake, pretending to help her estate, he would devour it. They would purposely mismanage the property's finances and then they would kind of make sure that it was conjured up in such a way that it would all kind of fall on them. And then ultimately, they would take the house of the widow and pledge of the debt. Essentially, oh, I did all this work for you. Now here's how much you owe me. And the widow would be like, I can't pay you this. And the scribes would go, oh no. Well, I guess I'll, I guess I'll take your house. And they would devour their homes. And horribly, when this widow would die, there would be nothing left for her children. So in ancient Near East, you had a growing population of widows becoming impoverished, homeless, and broken. Widows! And with all of that in our framework of thought, in walks our case study for this morning. Look at verse 41. And Jesus sat down. Can we just park it there for a moment? Can we just appreciate that? This has nothing to do with the teaching. I just want us to appreciate this. Jesus sat down. Sometimes it's easy to forget about Christ's humanity. Remember, this is, he's already driven out the people out of the temple. This is his last time he will ever visit a temple. He's on his way to death. 
And I love these small, ordinary moments of Jesus where he was probably tired, and it says he sat down. I don't know, maybe I, I like it. Verse 41, and Jesus sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came in and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. Jesus sat down where most people sat down, alongside what's called the court of the women. This was a courtyard outside the Herodian temple. It was called Court of the Women, not because only women could worship there, but because women could go no further. This is one of the biggest gathering places. And this is where visitors would come and bring their, their offerings. So let's picture this, because this is important for our understanding. Where Christ is sitting is a place that many would rest. It's a modern park bench. So Jesus is straight up people watching. People, he's people watching. Is anybody here a total creeper and people watch? Yeah. <laughs> Don't do it. It's very uncomfortable. People know when they're being watched. And as Jesus is sitting and watching the hustle and bustle, this parade of people and peacocks, all these good, obedient Jewish men and women are giving their offering in what, like this brass trumpet looking thing. These like receptacles. There would have been 13 of them lined up. This is where you'd make your worshipable deposit. Now remember, there's no paper money. There's no checks, there's no push pay, there's no swipe of a credit card. What was their currency of that day? Coinage. Coins. And when one has a coin purse that's large and it is dropped, guess what? It's very, very loud. Does anybody use those at the grocery store, those coin star machines? Anybody use those back in the day? Oh man, in high school, those are my jam. I would take gallons of change and you just pour it in and then you flip the thing up, remember? And it just sounds ridiculously loud. But I was so pumped. I would turn around, put the vibes out. I'd let everybody know it's this money's falling. I got you. I, I was so pumped with how loud it was because I would get that 14 bucks. Oh boy. I miss coin stars. Are they still? I don't know if they're still around. Yes. They are? Okay. I'm gonna do it after this. <laughs> the louder the drop, the louder the drop, the greater the prestige, right? So many would come wanting to be seen doing incredible things for God, wanting to be noticed with their spiritual activities. I can probably safely assume that there are some people here today who want to be noticed for their spiritual activities. That is a temptation of mine daily. But then, in the midst of these loud coins dropped, and dropping, in comes a widow. In the midst of scribes, in comes a widow. Essentially, in the, in the midst of wolves, in comes a lamb. We can safely assume she's poor, right? We can also speculate as to why she's poor, why she has a penny to her name, as these scribes are fluttering around her. And as the circus is happening, she goes virtually unnoticed and what? Unheard. She's unheard. Everybody else is loud. Ching, ching, ching. Coin, you know, coin star, whatever. Not her. No one hears a penny drop in this temple. She is the broken, poor, weak, forgotten, invisible woman to all who are there. except Jesus. Jesus watches how she gives. Jesus watches how she worships. Jesus still watches how we give. Jesus still watches how we worship. Verse 43. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, hey, truly I say to you, like a field trip, like a, like a seminary class on the road, he wakes all the disciples up. He says, shh, truly, 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 I say to you. He's trying to get their attention. This is the equivalent of him saying, verily, verily, listen closely. Truly, I say to you is basically him saying, this is going to be on the test. Truly, I say to you, is this the point where he goes, if you're going to listen to anything I'm going to say, it's this. Pay attention to this. Collect a church, if possible, from here on 
out in our talk, I want to give us some considerations. In the same way the disciples are invited by Jesus to listen intently, I invite you all to do the same with our talk regarding money. Verily, verily. Now, I really, really, really don't want there to be any confusion today. I don't want there to be any fluff this morning. What I hope for is biblical, concise, challenge takeaways. So there are some biblical considerations in the area of money that we all must weigh, including myself. Because here's the thing. Money may be the last taboo. But for most here, money in the church, money in the church is the ultimate taboo. Money in God, that's one thing. That's still very personal. But money in the church, that's a whole different ugly ball of wax. Essentially, does one give to the church? What's this whole thing about tithing? How much does one give? Lorenz already made a joke out of it, gross versus net. What about if I'm a student and I can't afford to give? If God is so rich, why in the world does he need my money? What about supporting other charitable Christian organizations other than the church? These are just some of the trepidations with church and money. So if you're here and you're caught up in the thorny weeds of those questions, then what I'm about to say is for you. If you don't give anything at all to the work or the mission of God, then what I'm about to say is for you. If you're frustrated with the church or you're frustrated with this church, what I'm about to say is is for you. And if you're a follower of Jesus who desires to be transformed more and more into his likeness, what I'm about to say is for you. So the first consideration is this. Oh, good. I saw everybody go down to their notes. I'm, I'm so... Brownie points. Here's the first one. Generosity. Number one. Generosity. Here's a while. Verse 43. Jesus gets the attention of the disciples and what? Truly I say to you, this, this poor widow, this widow has put in more. She has put in more than all of those who are contributing to the offering box. Put in more? Jesus is terrible at math. What is he talking about? The widow has just put put in, and if we consider it, I mean, if we know anything about it, the smallest coin in circulation within Palestine, Palestine. These types of coins were these little teeny bronze pieces weighing less than a gram each. So for, you know, reference, a penny weighs about three grams. These are less than one gram. Doesn't common sense or our instinctual 2018 brains essentially say with those two little Grammys, don't we essentially just say, she didn't give anything. She didn't give anything, right? She she gave nothing. (laughs) We step on pennies all the time, don't we? I walk by pennies all the time at the grocery store. They're trash to me. I don't know. 7-Eleven gives away for free, don't they? right? I couldn't even tell you the last time I touched the penny. I don't even know the president that's on the penny. Oprah? I don't know. See how relevant that joke was? Oprah, get it? She's the president. Whatever. Let's just make this super, super practical. Let's just ask, is two cents worth more than $2,000? No. Is a penny worth more than $100? Thank you. (laughs) So in what dimension is Oprah's pennies worth more than thousands? Well, God's apparently. What we have before us is what's considered new covenant form of financial giving. That being generosity. You can define new covenant, essentially it's post, life, ministry, preaching, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. 
New covenant form of financial generosity. So here's what I'm proposing with all of that. No more tithing. Some people here are like, oh, I like this church. (laughs) No one in here is under any religious law to tithe. In fact, if I can say this, I encourage everyone in here to stop using the word. All right, bear with me, because what we're about to do right now is a 100-meter dive, free dive, with no scuba gear, okay? So bear with me. Tithe means what? A tenth. In the Old Testament, believers required to give a tenth, an exhortation and principle to all Israeli citizens as part of God's theocratic reign. And even that is sorely, sorely, sorely misunderstood. If you were to flip through the Old Testament, and understand and read it in its fullest, the total prescribed giving in the Old Testament was amounted to, estimated to somewhere between 20 and 23%. Not 10. And only once, only once, only once in the New Testament is tithe even mentioned. And it is by Jesus himself in the Gospel of Luke chapter 11, I believe. But get this. Jesus doesn't say, like I just said, no more tithing. Jesus doesn't abolish tithing. Jesus, at the very least, assumes tithe. Jesus, at the very least, assumes tithing, meaning that 10% is seen as a kind of minimum guideline for giving to the mission of God. So hear me on this. A 10%, a tithe, is easy. That's easy. Those are borders and frames and fences that are easy for us. The new covenant introduces something far more severe, that being generosity. Many love the 10% rule, which is a great guideline. I'm not knocking it. But the commend to tithing as the ideal or as the only method of giving simply does not capture the New Testament view of following Jesus. The best way that I know how to capture the aim of New Testament generosity is not for us to ask, how much must I give? The New Testament form of generosity is, no, how much do I dare keep? That being a question, I believe if we were to ask that, only true stewards would ask. If anyone in here is thinking or reassessing or revisiting right now, gee, 10%, 23%, thinking, I don't know, that seems like a lot. That approach, I would want to show us. If there's anybody's heart who are thoughts that right now, I say very gently, but I do say firmly, if that sort of creeps up, that is a... A light alarm, a red flashing alarm inside of us that possibly we see money as ours and not God's. Because the truth is, is we believe in the biblical doctrine of stewardship, then we would actually hear know that all of this is, as God says, essentially, you know, if we saw this, that God's grace and goodness is you live on, or you give me the 10% and you live on the 90. Like that's how insane this is. We have to see God's generosity and grace and even that, even the Old Testament understanding, you just give me 10, but you keep the 90. If anybody here has an appointment like that, tell me about it. Seriously, because that sounds amazing. It's amazing. So my my hope right now, and I want to just cut this to the heart, and these are God's words, not mine, is if we up... If we withhold funds from his work for his people, knowing the understanding of stewardship that it's all his, and we withhold it, wouldn't that be considered robbery? Old Testament book of Malachi says, will man rob God? This is internal conversation. Yet you are robbing me. But you say... How have we robbed you, God, in your tithes and contributions? 
God's conversation, book of Malachi, chapter three. Now, if I'm not careful, I'm primed to be misunderstood. So let it be said for public record here and now, I am not, Lorenzo is not, collective church is not, after your money. We're not after your money by any means. In fact, I don't even think we should only, only, only give to the local church. If we're only giving to the local church, I would invite you to reassess. I love hearing stories about people giving to parachurches, missionary care, so on and so forth. But I do believe that Christians should give first to the local church. This is exactly what the widow is doing. Like we said, she is in the court of the women. There are 13 collection boxes, receptacles. They're called trumpets, and they have like this smaller spout, and they get to a bigger spout at the bottom. There would have been 11 there and two in some other places. Okay, there would have been, they're called the trumpets, like I said. But what I didn't tell you is that each one of them was for special purpose in temple care. In temple care. See, what I didn't, what I want to make sure that is, is, is very clear in this moment is some of these trumpets that you, would, that you would deposit in or put money in, what this did was help purchase turtle doves, depending on the trumpet, or incense, depending on the trumpet, or other wood, depending on the trumpet, or rabbi care, depending on the trumpet. So what we have the widow doing right now is not even tithing. What she's doing is being generous to God's institution, that being the temple. She goes, I'm going to help purchase incense. The principle there, I believe, is the priority of our giving. I believe the priority of our giving Christians, if I read the Bible carefully, should go to God's new institution, the church. Now, maybe you're saying, Casey, you trickster, you told us not to listen to the old covenant. You got me, buddy. No, no. If you remember, out of our two years in the book of Acts, what we saw over and over and over and over was people, believers, giving their money not to specific projects or passion projects, but at the feet of the church leaders. And it was there through the local church that the believers were able to accomplish everything God had called them to. The local church. One of the things that is, is one of my deepest loves in all this world is the local church. It's considered the bride of Christ, and it's the one institution that Jesus started. He was an entrepreneur, but he created one institution. It is the only organization going into eternity. This is God's plan A. There is no plan B. Well, if the church fails, I'm gonna rock it with this paratroop. God has plan A, and the rest of the alphabet does not exist. This is God's plan A in reaching the world. Not, it's not another charity. This is not another charity. It's a family. So there is no, I give to the church. No. There is, I as the church give. And you know as well as I do, and this is where I really want to speak very, very humbly, but I want to speak very, very personably. You know as well as I do, is wherever we pour our resources or our finances, wherever place our heart follows. That's why we've been very open. We've said in times past that if somebody's done with a church, and I've seen this with any church I've been a part of, if somebody's over it or done, their giving is always the first thing to go. Always. So I say that because for anybody here thinking that this community, that collective church, that maybe it's time I'm done. Maybe it's time I start looking for something new. Allow me to ask this if you're in that spot. Is it possible, if you were thinking that, that either you don't give here at all or you give so little it's it's not worth much. Giving, giving financially to your local church is just one of the many ways we proclaim this is my family. Giving to the local church through thick and thin is a proclamation, this mission is my mission, or another way is I am all in. 
And let's make this really, really, really relevant. If you don't want to be generous here, you can't imagine being generous here at Collective Church, then please, for the love of God, please find a Jesus-proclaiming, biblically authoritative, Holy Spirit-driven, God-honoring local church where you can be generous. Please, for your own sanctification, please. A community where you can give financially because you believe God is at work there. Where you can live out your finances, as it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, should be on the screen. This is Paul talking. He's talking about money. He's talking about church or believers. He goes, for they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord. Beyond their means, beyond their means, beyond, uh, what? Beyond their means. Collective church, is this not our widow? Collective church, this is our admonition to live generously. What in the world does beyond their means even mean? How does that actually translate? Well, it's fascinating because if you look in the Greek, it's interpreted beyond their means. There you go. See, if you're like the widow, if your heart is like the widow, Christ sees you, Christ commends you, and so do we. Lorenzo and I were talking earlier this week that essentially we would love for everybody in our church to give financially as much as the widow, a penny. If that meant there was full, unhindered devotion to God. So again, our goal, Christ's goal, is not more money, but devotion. More devotion, more ruthless trust. What we want for you is to be pressed into the image of Christ, and that is discipleship. We've said it every week that your money, my money, is fundamental to our discipleship. So because of that, we're not ashamed to speak on it. Because of that, we're not ashamed to pass a basket. We're not ashamed to encourage discipleship groups to go revisit, reassess what you give. By the way, if you're in a discipleship group, that's my encouragement to do that this week. Talk about how much you give, where you give, why you give. Christ wants his church. He wants us to be first generous, that being the first consideration, and second, to be sacrificial. Don't worry, the rest come a lot faster. Everybody's like, four points. No, they're all going to come a lot faster. First generous, second sacrificial. Because look at this, look at verse 44. For they all contributed out of their abundance. All these peacocks, out of their abundance. But she, but she, out of her poverty... If generosity is our destination, sacrificial is the vehicle which takes us there. I think of all the considerations and invitations I'm going to present today, partnering with God this way is the least understood because this is the most personal, this is the most upsetting, this is the most bothersome. This one requires each of us Christians to do deep personal work. My favorite part of this very true historic episode of The Widow this is my favorite part. I don't know if anybody picked up on it. Is that she didn't put in one coin. Did you catch that? She had two, all that she had, and guess what? She put in two. How easy it would have been to keep one. Maybe she wrestled with it. Oh, I'll just keep one. Maybe she struggled and toiled and grappled with the fact that this internal battle of, this is all I have left. These peacocks have taken everything away from me. But in the end, she sacrificed and put two coins in, making this widow generous. And even think about that, the social injustice that surrounded this widow, she gives, it totally gives her an out. It gives her an out. Oh, well, I've been completely ripped off by all these people. I can't possibly give right now. I've got, I'm so low in funds. She has a great out. But, verse 41, out of her poverty. One of my complete, complete honors of being a pastor in general is being with people in the church, being with people in general who are, who are in challenging times. It is my honor that I'm even invited into those situations. 
but as I'm sitting there and they desire to make meaningful change in their life, and when the topic comes to financial need or financial giving, I would say 99.999% of my conversations go like this. I don't give because I'm in debt. I don't have any money. I don't have a job. I'm in school and my parents let me have their credit cards. I'm hurting financially right now. I'll give to the kingdom of God then. Or I'll give to the kingdom of God when. These are as if these were uh, outs, like the widow has. But she, out of her poverty, when I encourage people in that, essentially would have to tell them that sacrificial giving is when you'd rather hold on to it, but give it instead. So something, so imagine this. So somebody in here could give $10,000 an hour to this church. Have it set up on pushback, $10,000 an hour for the next 10 years. If you want to do that, well, cool, whatever. But if somebody could do that. But if it wasn't something you grappled with, then it wasn't a sacrifice. And I would not encourage you to give that way. If somebody gave two pennies to a ch- this church a year, but it was not something we grappled with, then it wasn't a sacrifice. Theologian Jonathan Edwards has a piercing quote, in my opinion. He says, when people say I can't afford to give, what they're really saying is, I can't afford to give without burdening myself. The story of the widow is actually quite highly debated, if you know this at all. If you've done any research this past week or if you've done it in times past, people say it's not about money at all, it's about the social injustice, it's, a, it's, a, you know, it's not about finances. But here's, the, who cares? At the marrow of it, it's about this. If we want to know what Christ means when he applies, implies all in, this is it. She can be all in with her finances because she's all in with her trust. A lot of New Testament narratives, if you've noticed, have this incredible thing where they introduce this really hurting person or this really crazy person and something amazing happens. But then guess what? They just peace out. We don't see or hear from them again. Zero follow-up with all these amazing people. That is true of this widow as well. Honestly, we don't know if she will eat that night. We have no idea if she'll be taken care of. We have no idea when she will pass on. We have no idea what happened to her. We don't know anything. All we know... All we know is her measure of trust. So the same thing that we're wondering about with her, she is wondering about. Am I going to eat tonight? Last week, I worked really hard in trying to show that money isn't a devilish idol. Money is not the devil. Money is not the root of all problems. Far from it. Actually, money is the great deliverer. of of prestige, power, sex, luxury, status, and affirmation. So if that is the case, money is less of an idol, but more of a, imagine a reporter broadcasting our hearts idols. Money shows where our trust is anchored. Do you know where that might be for you today, Christians? Is it in something other than Christ? How about those here who don't profess Jesus? Do you know what your trust is in, what your security is in. The only way I could possibly stand up here and rant telling a bunch of peers, friends, strangers, and loved ones to give sacrificially and generous with their money and with their material possessions in Los Angeles of all places is exactly because what he, Christ, has given up for us. That is it. That is pure and simple. That is my only logic. I stand up here not as a showman, but as a witness. For some crazy reason, we are more precious to this personal God of the Bible, we are more precious than any amount of money in this known universe, any amount of gold in this this known universe, any amount of riches in this known universe. I'd be curious to know for you if the reverse is true. The Bible over and over and over calls God's people treasured possessions, calls this room of people special possessions treasured possessions. So when I sit with the gospel, where I see Christ leaving behind all riches and status, be born 
himself in a farm stable, live an impoverished life, go to a very shameful cross, substitute himself to take my due punishment for my idol worship, all the while I was his enemy because he treasured me, because he treasures you. When I sit with that, when I hold that, friends, that forever changes me. That changes the way I want to spend my money, my time, or my life. I don't know about you, and many of you know this about me and why there's so much pain last year in my life and my family's life, but I have struggled my entire life with an extremely low, low, low self-worth issue. I'm surprised any of you are here. Thank God it's not because of me. I'm surprised anybody wants to have a conversation with me. I don't even want to have a conversation with me. You know what I mean. But seeing, seeing how I am treasured by Christ, that makes me want to treasure him. That makes me not want to hold a penny back and give it to lesser loves. Because he gave it all for me, then I have this blessed assurance that I can give it all for him. See, giving is no longer, nor should it be any longer, a chore but a joy. It's no longer an obligation, but a privileged collective church. So then, this being, I would say, one of our last considerations is cheerfulness. Let me just read this verse. It's very famous, but it's so powerful. 2 Corinthians in the New Testament says this. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. To give a little, you're only, you're only going to get a little. But, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must gift as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, but God loves a cheerful giver. God loves when somebody gets the gospel and they're cheerful about it. That person's got it. Gosh, mm. So I'm going to do something right now that may be an extremely unorthodox. I hope I have everybody's attention as we wrap up. I'm going to do something very unorthodox. I'm going to address Christians in here for a moment. The only, I would say this, the way one trusts the gospel can and must be measured in how sacrificially, cheerfully, and generous they give or they are. Essentially, the measure you know the gospel will be played out in where your money is. More than how you serve on Sunday, if at all, more than how many prayer meetings you attend, if at all. The Bible proves again and again that sacrificially cheerful, generous finances are the, one of the strongest indicators of gospel comprehension. Very quickly in Acts chapter 20, as Paul is getting ready to leave, he's having this deathbed conversation. He's telling all these people, I will not see you again. I am going to die. And he starts talking about them committing to the gospel that not only saves you, but builds you up. Commit to grace, commit to the gospel, commit to God. Paul's saying all these things. And then he finishes by saying this in the New Testament. He says, verse 35 of chapter 20 of Acts, he says, in all the things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the, poor, uh, remember the words of the Lord Jesus. How he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. He's thinking he's going to die. You don't just mince words. You don't just fluff around. You get straight to the point. And what he's telling them in this moment is that there is nothing more important I can say than understand the gospel, understand grace, and if you will give radically if you do, and you will be blessed. So collective church, knowing that, here it is. Let me have your attention. Please. Knowing that, then I desire to challenge you. Christians here, students here, those who don't give, I want to challenge you. Over the next uh, three months, 90 days to round it off, I would say give generously, sacrificially, cheerfully, and our last consideration, regularly. To the mission of God. Cheerfully, generously, sacrificially, regularly. Not 
by chance, not by afterthought, regular giving, regular worship for your own, for my own growth, discipleship, and trust. And if anybody here is thinking that we're still after your money, hear me, hear me on this. If you're still thinking I'm after your money, let's remove the, what I just said to you. Let's remove the weird factor. We'll remove even the fear factor right now. If any of you, this challenge freaks you out, at the end of this time frame, three months, 90 days, I'm just trying to give something tangible. At the end of that time, how about this? We'll give you every dime back, no questions asked. If you come at the end of three months and go, this just, I could not do this, it killed me, tell us and we'll give you your money back and say, absolutely, here you go. This is not for the church to get money. This is a challenge to put our money where our mouth is and to trust in God. I dare you to trust immensely. This is also a challenge directed at me. One of my favorite spiritual authors, and we'll end with this, Brennan Manning, God bless him. He says this, childlike surrender and trust, I believe, is the defining spirit of authentic discipleship. The defining spirit of authentic discipleship is trust in all the things that we have. May that be ever true with every portion of our lives, but for today, may that be ever true of our money, our possessions, and our treasures. Amen? Let's pray.